So let's let's go verse six and following. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, the uh, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridah, and Tabiel, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the letter written in Aramaic and translated Rehum, in the command, and the, the commander and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Snapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king, your servant. The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. <coughs> and now, <coughs> be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. The royal revenue will be impaired now, because we eat the salt of that place, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send the and inform the king in order that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and sedition was stirred up in it from of old that was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer. Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the great river. Greetings. And now... The letter you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole providence beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease that this building, that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai and the scribe and their associates and they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped 
and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, remember that verse 24 jumps back to verse 5. So verse 24 is telling you about the 15-year period between verse 1 and 5. But verse 23 is referring to the time period that happens around Nehemiah, which is years later, almost 100 years later. So um, why is this in this passage? Why is this here? And I want to remind you that uh, there are some things that we're learning about adversaries and attacks on the people of God. So Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, begins to be, it's written in Aramaic. From chapter 4, verse 6, until chapter 6, verse 18. So if you've got your Bible and you see headings in your Bible, if you just turn the page, you'll see that chapter 6, verse 19 is where they start the Passover. Chapter 4, verse 6, all the way to chapter 6, verse 18, is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. And the original text is an Aramaic text. Aramaic is the common language of that area. It is not specific to the Hebrew people. It is not the language by which God communicated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a common language shared among all people. It's common, uh, and at one point, it wasn't recognized by the Jews as a language of note. So much so that the, the, when Assyria is mocking God and, and challenging the Jews from outside the gate, they yell in Hebrew because they know that the Jews didn't recognize Aramaic and they didn't pay any attention to it because they had authority and power. So the author of Ezra is giving you a little bit of a clue as we begin here. That they are living in a sort of exile even as they're returning to Jerusalem. And until the walls are rebuilt and the kingdom is reestablished, they will be in exile. And the question here at the very outset of this language thing, this this fascinating language shift, the very answer that we have is the question is when when does the exile end and the answer Passover the exile of the people of God ends with the Passover lamb when atonement is made for the people that's what it is and indeed we have a greater Passover lamb in Jesus Christ atonement has been made for our sins, and before we go any further, let's get this message from Ezra. That Jesus Christ has saved us, rescued us, and now we can worship the Lord in our own language. We can call upon His name because we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And because of that, we get salvation. And we get a kingdom beyond this one, greater than this one. We get a kingdom that's beyond hands that no one can tear down. Because of our great Passover lamb, we get to speak and praise the Lord in our own tongue and language, in the tongue and language that's native to our soul. So all that said at the outset. outset, Ezra chapter 4 
tells us about these adversaries and their prolonged attack. And one of the things that Ezra is trying to get through to the people, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah trying to get through to the people of God, is that adversaries will always be there. As long as we are on this earth, there are people who will be antagonistic to the gospel message. Indeed, there will be spiritual forces antagonistic to the gospel message. Remember what we talked about last week? The message of the Jews was a blessing to the world. That through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Through Abraham's offspring, which we know is Jesus, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So let's dive into the text here and see what it says about the adversaries. First, just a reminder, the adversaries of the gospel come to fight. They come to fight. In the very first verse of chapter 4, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple of the Lord God, they approached the Rebabel and the heads of the fathers' houses, and they said to them, Let us build with you. And then they say no. And then in verse 4, <laughs> the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, even until the reign of Darius the king of Persia. So the adversaries come to fight the instant they hear. They come to fight when the people of God are worshiping. They come to fight when the people of God refuse to compromise. Zerubbabel says, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not, you're not going to be able to build with us. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to synchronize. We're not going to syncretize our religion. We're going to be faithful to the Lord. You can't be a part of this because you worship other gods. So they, when the people of God refuse to compromise, they come. And then when the people of God persist, when you are persistent in your faith, and you are walking faithfully with the Lord, listening to Him and doing what He has called you to do, the adversary will fight with you. Spiritual adversaries, human adversaries, if you are being faithful to the Lord, you are going to encounter tribulation and struggle. You are going to encounter persecution, even on a minor level. You are going to encounter spiritual persecution always. You can test this. Try to do something extra holy in a week and watch how quickly you get bothered by other things. Whether it's emotional or anxiousness or depression lands on you or people start to bother you or you find yourself being short-tempered for no apparent reason, you will find that they will be persistent. The adversaries will be persistent. So the adversaries of the gospel come to fight. They come to fight when we, when we worship. They come to fight when we refuse to compromise. And they come to fight when we persist. Now, how do they fight? The adversary has particular tactics. And we saw these in verse 4. Right? These, these are illustrated here. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. That phrase is literally discouraged their hands. That's literally what it means. Discouraged their hands of the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. <coughs> so they spent 15 years doing these things. They discourage your hands 
They intimidate your heart. They cheat your process by bribing officials. And they frustrate your hopes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been uh, attacked by people who are behaving wickedly, whether it's in the workplace or, God forbid, church or in the political arena or even in your neighborhood. This is common. This is common. When you refuse to syncretize or you refuse to compromise your faith in Christ and you refuse to say, I'm going to just kind of make make concession here and allow for these wicked things. When you refuse to do that, this is what happens. People try to discourage the work of your hands. They put it down. They mock it. They, they tear it down. They tell you that it's not good enough. They, they, or they, they passive-aggressively tell you that it's fine. They intimidate your heart. They start putting things in front of you, or the adversary will start putting things in front of you that seem too big. That seem too big. God tells you, dream and dream big. I'm God. I can do everything. The adversary tells you, that's too big. That's too much. You should cut back. They try to intimidate your heart. They try to tell you. They try to scare you off. They'll try to cheat your process. They'll try to infect the people who are in charge of the rules that give you space and time. They try to infect that process. They, this happens all the time in gospel ministry when you are moving ahead and you're doing great and then all of a sudden there's all these regulations that are laid out in front of you that prohibit you from doing it. Well, we just passed the city ordinance or we just did this thing over here that now you have to have a, an approval process or we just did this thing over here or this, we just have this rule that you have to talk to this person or, or you have to go through this hoop. You have to jump through this hoop to do this thing and it's super frustrating. They will, they will cheat your process and then finally they'll frustrate your hope. Now, I want you to understand that this happens with people often But this also happens with spiritual forces. In your Christian walk and in your obedience to the Lord, you will come across these things. The adversary will try to discourage you, make you feel like you're not good, like your work is worthless. He'll ask you why you do things in in secret. He'll ask you why it even matters. He'll give you moments of attack and depression and anxiety. He will sabotage and speak and charge you. Your adversary will try to intimidate you and tell you that the things that you want to accomplish are too big for you and you can't do it. Your adversary will cheat your processes and and try to infect the people around you. We found at, at Sovereign Grace that when he can't successfully bother our church... He can successfully bother outside our church and frustrate us by frustrating our processes, by attacking those who are outside the church. And he will frustrate our hope, trying to convince us that there is no way that we can succeed. Now, we are the temple of God being built by Jesus Christ. Who can frustrate that? No one can. No one can overcome it. And we know this in our heads, but sometimes it's difficult to feel that in our heart. 
Sometimes it's difficult to understand and feel we cannot be defeated because we've already been given the victory. So, what do we need to know? One, we need to understand that Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God has put the the adversary and the, the darkness, He's put them to open shame. They don't have weapons. So let's get a proper perspective of the adversary. He, the, the accuser, as the Bible calls him, cannot do anything to you. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you, there is no way for him to defeat you. There isn't. You've already got the victory. Now that doesn't mean you don't succumb to depression once in a while. That doesn't mean that you don't succumb to anxiety. But one of the things we have to remind ourselves of is that he can't do anything beyond what the Lord will allow. He's been disarmed. He has no weapons. He has no weapons. Demons do not have weapons against you. He's been disarmed. All he can do is lie to you. It's all he can do, and he's good at it. Don't get me wrong. He's good at it. We sang that Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sang that that song. You sang and, and listened as we heard the Lord uh, Martin Luther confessing, look, this is the Prince of Darkness Grimm, but we don't tremble over him. This is, his craft and power are great and they're armed with cruel hate. But one word will fell him. One word. We have victory over him. The Lord has disarmed our adversary. Second, we need to understand that for freedom, Christ has set us free. The adversary wants to bind you. He wants to bind you with false legalism and with false attempts at making you something, uh, binding you down. The Lord has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. Do not put yourself under a new law. You are not given a new law in Christ. You are given grace and freedom to pursue Christ. What was once labor and toil for you, what was once law and requirement for you, is now freedom to pursue holiness. You are now free to pursue holiness. Why are we holy? Because we can be. Before we couldn't. We're holy now in freedom. We pursue holiness because it's joy. And it's joy everlasting for us. And it continues to grow and grow. Another thing, since therefore, this is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same thing. That through death... He, that's Jesus, might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has conquered death. The adversary wants you to be afraid of death. Because that's where his power is. If you are afraid, then his power is there. He can keep you afraid. He wants you to be afraid of death. And yet, we are not afraid of death because Christ has conquered death 
and we are no longer slaves. We are free in Christ Jesus. So, Ezra 4, we see uh, the adversaries come to fight the gospel, come to fight when the gospel is made known. The adversary has these tactics, and then finally, when the people of God worship, the battles begin. If you are pursuing holiness and you are chasing the Lord and you are learning more of who He is, do not be surprised when things start to get rough. Do not be surprised when things start to get rough. The battles will begin when you strive to worship. Let's talk for a minute about these rulers that are mentioned in this passage. Artaxerxes, uh, sorry, Cyrus Darius, uh, Ahasuerus, which I'm going to call Xerxes from now on. That's his name in the other books. So Xerxes and Artaxerxes. They're all political leaders who are embroiled in constant controversy. All of these guys... And we can, we can name them kind of this way. This is how it kind of helps me to understand what they did. You've got the tolerant. Uh, Cyrus is the tolerant. He lets everybody go back to their own kingdoms and rebuild. Then you've got Darius, who's the pacifier. Darius is the one who, when they write to him, he goes, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. we got to stop what you're doing. we got to make sure everybody's happy. Let's make sure everybody is happy and in agreement. And then he pulls out the letter from Cyrus and goes, no, no, they're allowed to keep building. So he lets them keep building in the second year of his reign. So he's the pacifier. And then you've got Xerxes, who is the advised one. Xerxes is the one who listens to his advisors all the time. And the problem with listening to advisors, as we're going to see in a minute, is that when you listen to liars, you end up doing the wrong thing. And so Xerxes is the one who's constantly listening to princes and advisors. And so you see this modeled in the book of Esther, uh, where Xerxes, Artaxerxes, they, they both listen to their advisors and that gives them trouble, right? So then you've got Artaxerxes, who is the war-torn leader. Everything starts to fall apart under Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes starts to have rebellion in Egypt, rebellion beyond the, the rivers, rebellion uh, over towards the north of Israel. He's having rebellion everywhere, even behind him, even on the, uh, the western front, he's having Rebellion, and he's having to deal with that everywhere. So this helps me to understand kind of what's going on in this chapter. You've got the tolerant, the pacifier, the advised one. Advised being a negative term. He hears from liars and he believes them. And then Artaxerxes, the war-torn leader. Now, all of these, all of these leaders are embroiled in constant controversy and rebellion. Xerxes is at war with the Greeks and Egyptians. Artaxerxes fights rebellions in Egypt and east of Jerusalem. <coughs> and they are in constant turmoil. They're all also ignorant of distant provinces. So they're trying to rule this massive kingdom, but they're ignorant of what's going on all the way in these distant provinces. So what should our response be to such leadership? This is a pertinent question for us, given the fact that our political leaders are there. This is them. Right? We've got these same kinds of leaders. So first, our first response is to pray. You need to make prayer a part of your daily DNA. Just who you are. It needs to be part of who you are. It's part of who we are as a church, but it also needs to be part of who you are as a person. We need to pray. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that, and what you have heard from me 
in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, that's not the right verse. Mm-mm. I read that out loud without actually thinking about it. Go to chapter 2 of, of 2 Timothy. I cut and pasted chapter 1. This our 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy. I want you to hear it. Go to 2 Timothy. So if you've got it in front of you, 2 Timothy chapter 2. For some reason, by the way, somebody... Must have been supposed to hear that. Um, sorry, First Timothy. I, that, that is Second Timothy chapter two. Go to First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter two, verses one and two. Is everybody there? First Timothy, not Second Timothy. First Timothy, chapter two, verses one and two. This will make a whole lot more sense. Pray is the point. You're supposed to pray. First of all. I urge supplications, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You are to pray that the Lord would take care of the leaders so that you can live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is our first response to rulers and authority. Our first response to rulers and authority is to appeal to our greater authority. To appeal to Jesus, the greater authority, the King. We are to appeal to Him first. We are to pray. The second thing we are to do is to submit Sometimes we submit, just by caveat, so you understand, sometimes we submit by, uh, by, disobe- by civil disobedience. Baptists have a history of what's called civil disobedience. Really, Christians have a history of what's called civil disobedience. And what that means is when we see something that is contrary to the Word of God, we accept the punishment for it. So if they tell us we're not allowed to meet, your pastor's going to jail. That's accepting the punishment. We are told by God to gather. We are told by God, unless we as a congregation go, you know what, we're going to do this by whatever means, which by the way, we're never doing again. We're going to do this by whatever means electronically. I just want to tell you from my heart, like you'll be meeting on my front lawn before we do that again. So the, um, the, unless we decide... We have freedom of conscience and freedom of worship here. We are going to take advantage of it. And if they tell us that I can't preach the gospel or I can't meet again, civil disobedience dictates that I submit to them by going to jail, by accepting the punishment. That's what civil disobedience is. It's it's a submission by accepting the punishment. So we have a long history of that. And in Romans chapter 12, I mean chapter 13, Verse 1 to 5, it says these things. Just let this, let this kind of wash over you. This is how we respond to wicked leaders. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. So these authorities are authorities that are put there by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. It's very logical. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free 
from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one that is in authority is great is, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Bear in mind, Paul wrote that, having gone to prison for disobeying the authorities in the past, having been beaten and struck for disobeying authorities in the past, he wrote this, saying, submit to authorities. So there must be a type of submission that is right and that the authorities will punish wrongly. But we are to submit. This is one of the things Christians make the best citizens. Justin Martyr argued in his apology to the emperor that Christians make the best citizens because we love Jesus first, makes us love other people, and then two, because we submit to authorities and we accept the punishment. We don't rebel and cause wars and rumors of wars to break out. Rather, we submit and we we accept punishment. So pray, submit, sometimes through civil disobedience, and then pay taxes. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to government. <coughs> give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Romans chapter 13, verses 6 through 7. You are to pray, you are to submit, you are to pay taxes, and you are finally to be good citizens. We are to be good citizens. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who, are, who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. He goes on, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. No, not man's slaves. God's slaves. We are God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. So you're to be good citizens. So pray, submit, pay taxes, and be good citizens. Now... All that was set up for this. Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 and following. The prolonged attack of the people. The complaint began immediately. You saw that in verse 6. Ahasuerus, uh, in the beginning of his reign, they start writing letters. They start writing letters and accusations against them. They were written in Aramaic, which we talked about earlier. And if you'll note in verse 7, uh, verse 7 through 9, Every name is included. Every name is included. This is what you do when you're trying to get somebody on your side. Now, in many places, the way that this is done is they go, you know, everybody thinks this. And you have to drill down and go, well, who is everybody? Well, Susie. And she was talking to Susie. And you go, so Susie thinks this. Yeah, but everybody else agrees. Well, who is everybody else? 
This is the way that people often get people on their side, deceptively, manipulatively. And I just want to state for the record, this is wrong. Do not generalize things in order to make your point. Do not make yourself a pretend team in order to make your point. Make your point. Don't bother generalizing. So we see here these names, they're written in Aramaic and every name is included. There's a lot of pride going on here in verses uh, 7 through 9. They name off all the people, all the lands, all the places, the Babylonians, the Elamites, everybody. Everybody's mad about this, Ahasuerus. Everybody's mad about this. Please come do something. <coughs> so here's the content of the attacks. Let's, let's go verse 10. Or I'm sorry, verse uh, 11. This is the copy of the letter they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants... The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you, he gives, they're, they're t- saying like, this is your fault. They came from you. You sent them here. That have gone to Jerusalem. And they're rebuilding this rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. Now be it known to the king that if the wall is if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat of the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness such dishonor to the king. For therefore, we send and inform the king in order that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers and you will find the record that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up from of old, that... That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt, its walls finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So first, their attacks misrepresent loyalty. They misrepresent loyalty first. Now, look, they said, now because we eat of the salt of the palace, it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. They say, we are loyal to you. We're loyal to you, king. They, they appeal to the authority of the earth and they go, you, we eat of your salt. We take from your benefit. We benefit from you, king. So we are loyal to you. They're not loyal to the king. They're in uprising right now in the story. Historically, these people were causing rebellion. Yet they represent themselves to the king as though they're loyal to him. We're loyal to you, king. We're loyal to you. You need to, you need to take care of these other people. It's Ezra 4.14. And then they... Remember that the Jews did the same thing to Jesus when Jesus is before Pilate and they say they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They misrepresent their loyalties, their own loyalties. They misrepresent their own loyalties. They misrepresent the Jews' loyalties. They misrepresent their own loyalties. They say, these, uh, we're, we're loyal to the king. We're loyal to the king. And then when it suits them, they rebel on their own. You see, sin and wickedness in the heart of man is always sin and wickedness. Even if they misrepresent their loyalties at some point, they will always be rebellious. Those who do not believe in Jesus have rebellion pent up in their heart. And the only way for that rebellion to be overcome is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. To have the flesh cut off. Colossians chapter 2. To have the flesh cut off and to have a new nature 
put inside you, Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that is being renewed after the image of its creator. That's the only way that rebellion is defeated. And peace is made in the heart of man, reconciled to God. So the Jews did the same thing. So attacks of the enemy misrepresent loyalty. Attacks of the enemy misrepresent motives. It misrepresents motives. So they will misrepresent loyalty. They also misrepresent the motives of the Jews. They are rebuilding that wicked city. They're saying they're going to rebuild this city to fight against you. They're rebuilding the city in order to fight against you, King. Verse 12. If this city is rebuilt, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. They're misrepresenting the Jews. They're saying that they're going to not do taxes. They're not going to pay custom or toll. They're not going to let you march your armies through to defeat, to defeat the Egyptians who you are at war with. They're not going to let you bring your armies through to defeat the uh, Western Greeks that are rising in power. They're not going to let you come and do these things. And you, you need this central city in order to do these things. And so they misrepresent the Jews. They misrepresent their motives. Now... They misrepresent the motives. Jerusalem was to be a blessing to the earth. Jerusalem was to be a blessing to the earth. This is Psalm 48. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the, pay attention, is the joy of the earth. The Jews were supposed to be the joy of the earth. Where the temple was, The Mount of Zion was to be the joy of the earth. The joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the cities of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The Jewish city, Jerusalem, was supposed to be the place where every tribe, tongue, and nation could come and meet God. They were supposed to be a blessing to the world. This is what they are, Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. Their motives are to bless the nation. Same with Christians. This happens to us all throughout history. The Romans skewed our motives. Blamed us for burning down a city that they burned down. Blamed us for persecution that they did in Rome. False Christianity rose up for a time and began to slaughter people in the name of Jesus. It's one of the biggest blights on our religious faith in history. Began slaughtering people when true Christians were bending over backwards to save those people's lives. False Christianity rose up and enslaved people and misrepresented the motives of true Christians. And then abolitionist Christians stood up and said, no, no one is to be slave. Just a heads up, abolitionists were always Christian. All of them. Now, we've got this thing. The same thing happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. It says, then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Wouldn't that be great for that to be said of us? That the adversary would look for fault and can't find anything against us? 
that'd be great. That's exactly how we want to be. We want to be the type of people who when a governing official comes to try to shut us down or to say that we're, we're wrong over something, they can't find fault with anything that we do say, but rather are spoken to with love and charity in the name of the Lord. So in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the Jews were actually instructed to be good citizens, to seek the welfare of the city where the Lord has sent them into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf (coughs) for its welfare, that you will find your welfare. Same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, right? That you would pray for those in authority. So they misrepresent the loyalty, they misrepresent motives, and the attacks misrepresent circumstances. And now, this is, one, this is the letter in verse 12. Now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you are gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the wicked city. They are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. They weren't finishing the walls. They weren't repairing the foundations. They were finishing the temple. They don't finish the walls. They don't even get going on the walls until Artaxerxes reigns. And they're writing Xerxes going, they're finishing the walls. They're, they're rebuilding this city, this rebellious city. They misrepresent the circumstances. They misrepresent the circumstances. We know they misrepresent the circumstances because what's Nehemiah chapter 1 say? It says right away, the city's foundations were in ruins and the gates burned to the ground. We know they didn't have that done. They're misrepresenting this. They're misrepresenting the circumstances of their letter. Now, we learn this about rulers. If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. If a ruler listens to lies, he's going to be surrounded by wicked people. This is Proverbs 29, verse 12. If a ruler listens to lies, he's going to be surrounded by wicked people. Occasionally, God sends a Nehemiah into a ruler. A man who is just and right and upright to stand next to a ruler. But amidst Nehemiah's and Daniel's and Mordecai's, amidst these men are always liars and deceivers. They are always there. They will always be there. As long as the earth is still awaiting the return of our king, there will always be sinful people. And they will always clamor for victory of their own accord. Yet, we can trust that the Lord will move through godly men who will call those people to repent. They misrepresent the circumstances. And so often in your own life, things are going to be misrepresented on your behalf to others. Circumstances are going to be misrepresented and you're going to have to push through it and deal with it. Now the attacks misrepresent loyalty. They misrepresent motives and they misrepresent circumstances. They also misrepresent goals. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They emphasize rebellious and wicked. They're misrepresenting the goal. The goal was to bless the nations by being the city of God. What they are misrepresenting here is they're saying they are rising in order to start war. No. Zion was a place of peace. It's always a place of peace. There's always a place where people could come to find God and blessing. They will not pay. They say they won't pay your taxes. They're not going to pay your taxes. 
The royal revenue will be impaired. If you ever want to appeal to a political leader, tell them that their pocketbook is going to be hurt. If you ever want to appeal to any kind of leader, tell them that their pocketbook is going to be hurt. Money is often man's God. These rulers are no different than any other man. Money is their God. So, we see this this, uh, representation of the goal. You'll find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, that sedition was stirred up from of old. And that's why the city was laid waste. This is not an untrue statement, uh, but it's skewed. They were not rebellious. They were a kingdom unto themselves. They were a mighty kingdom. And the city was laid waste because of wicked kings and because of wicked kings in Jerusalem. It was laid waste by the hand of God who says of Assyria, you are a tool in my hand. The tool should not boast against its owner. And he says of Babylon, I will use you to take my people into exile. So the city was laid waste, that's true, but it's not because of sedition against kings, it's because of sin towards God. Now, they say, we make known to the king that if the city is finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. This is both a true statement and a lie at the same time. That king will have, if the city is rebuilt, if Zion becomes the great city of old that it once was, he will have no possession on that side of the river. It's true. Because Zion will be blessing him. And he will get the blessing of Zion. He won't need the possession. He will get the blessing of the kingdom. But they say, you get nothing. You'll get nothing. You'll get nothing. The gospel, though, is, goes out to everyone. This is a misrepresentation. The gospel goes out to everyone. The gospel goes out to those who would believe and trust in Jesus, that they would be saved, and they would have life and life everlasting. It is the blessing of God to the earth. This is what has been heralded from the beginning, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake, and that all peoples would be able to come to the Lord and rejoice and know Him. They say, you won't, even, you won't be able to come. You won't, you won't have possession. And yet, God has given them blessing. Now, the, con- the attacks misrepresent loyalties, they misrepresent motives, they misrepresent circumstances, they misrepresent goals. How many times in life have you been attacked? Just for a moment, think about that. How many times have you had people misrepresent their loyalties? Or the adversary, spiritually, misrepresent your loyalties? You don't really believe that. You don't really, you don't really trust in him. Your loyalties are elsewhere. Um, how many times? How many times have you had people misrepresent motives? This happens all the time. I know that that's usually how it set. That's usually how it starts. They start with, "I know that you think," "I know that you," and then they say something about you, and you're like, "Wait a second! I didn't say you're putting words in my mouth." Misrepresenting motives, misrepresenting circumstances. I know you've been through. I know this, and then they frame their argument. Misrepresenting goals. Your goal is only for yourself. Those attacks of the adversary. I want to encourage you with the words of Luther. Who said, when the adversary tells you you're not good enough. And he tells you that you're sinful and wicked. And that you can't do anything. 
you tell him, you know what, you're right. I am sinful and wicked. I can't do anything. But I have a God who has rescued me and redeemed me and changed me. And He can do everything. And He has changed my soul. And I'm no longer bound to your lies or your place on this earth. I'm no longer bound by your wicked laws. I am now free in grace. And my Lord has forgiven me. And I am His. And you will be silent. That's how we answer them. That's how we answer these things. So the attacks come on Ezra this way. And then the king responds. The king sent an answer to Rahim, to Rahim and the commanders, Shimshai and the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria beyond the province and beyond the river. Getting, and now the letter that you sent to me has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree. And search has been made. And it has been found that the city uh, of old has risen against kings. And that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings over all of Jerusalem who uh, ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Now, the king responds with, end this. And we know that this happens uh, they were the king recognizes they were a great nation that they uh, can't that they can't rise up again. If they rise up again, I will no longer be the greatest king. There will now be some other king in power. He's right. It's true. There will be some other king in power. Indeed, there is some other king in power. His name is Jesus. He reigns on the throne. It's an eternal one. He can't defeat. In Nehemiah chapter one verse three, we read that they burned the walls uh, during this time period. They burned everything. They burned it down as best they could. Uh, by force, they tried to end the blessing there at the end of this passage. They came by force in verse 23 and forced them to stop. So Ezra chapter 4 ends with this hope and despair at the same time. Telling you that for 140 years or so, it's going to take a long time to rebuild this temple and it's going to be really hard and there's constant adversaries there's constant attacks and I wanted to lay this out before us and not just read past this this morning but take time to walk through it because we live in a time where the same thing is going on where the adversaries of the gospel do not want the temple of God built you are the temple of God The adversaries of the gospel want you in depression and anxiety and constantly seeking for your own individuality in places of sin, looking more and more like the world and more and more homogenous, like one big ugly blob that looks the same. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ has freed you to be a beautiful representation of him in all his unique individual creative glory. So I didn't want to fly past this. I wanted you to get this. That you as a Christian have a hard road of growth before you. But it is a worthy role of growth. It is a worthy road. It is a delightful road. It is a full road. A lifeful road. And the adversary is going to try to make you depressed 
He's going to try to make you anxious. He's going to try to make you feel like there's no hope. And yet we know that there's hope. We know that we've already got the victory. We know that we have the word of God implanted in our soul because the Passover lamb has come. Jesus Christ has come. My sin has been defeated. And I am made new in Christ Jesus. We know this for a fact. So what do we do? What is our response? First, love. How do we respond to the spiritual attacks of the adversary? We love. Christians are marked by love. God is love. No one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, He is manifest among us. We love people. We are marked by love. They will know you by your love. These are all statements. And then it says here in Matthew chapter 5, 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you get attacked, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Second, we respond in truth. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped with when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. You are to embrace truth. You're to speak truth, and then you're to embrace it and pursue it with all that you are learning who you are in Christ Jesus and pursuing truth. Third, gentleness and respect. This is to be character traits that mark us as Christians, we are to be gentle and respectful. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. And finally, we are to trust. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear for what can man do to me. We are to love. We are to, we are to seek truth. We are to do so with gentleness and respect. And we are to trust the Lord. Because the Passover lamb has come. We have been redeemed and rescued. We have life and life eternal in Jesus Christ. Let us.